Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. This morning, and uh, what we're doing with our bonus coverage is talk a little bit about what the marriage of the beloved looks like. So, you know, we kind of talked all this time about the, what it means to be the beloved of God and, and the fact that uh, in Christ we are God's beloved. But in, uh, in marriage and in family, we actually have a wonderful opportunity to live that out each day. And then if, for those that aren't married, there's an opportunity to do that in day-to-day relationships. And so that's what we'll, we'll take a look at. So we're going to start with Ephesians 5. 21 to 33, and we'll take a little time working through this. Also, I put up on the board a kind of a chart that's not in your uh, outline, but it is up on the board, um, looking at the parallel of the way that Paul talks about the language that he uses is that he references the relationship between Jesus and the body of Christ, between Jesus and the church, and then also husbands and wives. Okay, so there's a, there's a direct correlation for that, and it's one that's an important piece to kind of appreciating what he's talking about, where he's coming from. Okay, so Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How about if we just stop there? Would that be okay if we just do that? Yeah. Okay. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, what jumped off the page for you? The husband is the head of the house. Okay, that's one thought that jumped off the page for Janet. All right, what else? Submission. Submission. That's another one. Popular words that are used today, right? I think we probably ought to spend a little time talking about what the word submit means, okay? Now, what do you hear when you hear or read the word submit? Do what, who said that? Who said do what I say? Okay, Fred, yes. I know, that's, I know, that's what we hear. No, that's what we hear, right? Isn't that what we hear? It, that, that whoever is the head, whoever is the, is the one who is the, you know, the top there in, in terms of the head, the first, if you will, that that somehow means that that person's the boss, and then submitting means what? Everybody down below that 
has to do what that person says or follow that person's uh, guide or whatever. Okay, so that's why we need to talk about what submit means. Because that's what it means in the worldly sense. That is not what it means here. All right, so the definition, if you'd look at it in terms of that uh, diagram that I have for you on the, fir- on the first page, all right? Submit is actually a military term. Now, St. Paul was not in the military. How would he have been influenced by the military, though? He's Roman, number one, but number two, what is his life condition at this point? He's under house arrest. Now, what does that mean? He's chained to a Roman soldier. And so wherever the Roman soldier would go, he probably presumably would have to go. And the idea is that he would have been aware of this. Now, here's where this is, gets real interesting, is that it's a military term meaning to align yourself in deference to the formation. And the formation, the defensive, offensive uh, formation that the Greeks, the Macedonians, and the Romans used was called phalanx. Anybody ever heard of phalanx? Anybody from a military background, phalanx, the idea of phalanx is, is that each person in the formation or each unit in the formation is positioned in such a way to provide defensive coverage for the other people in the formation. So if you look at that little uh, kind of rough uh, drawing there, what do you notice? All the shields are what? They're overlapping each other, all right? And what that means is, is that the shield would be overlapped in such a way that it would provide coverage for me who holds the shield, but also for the guy in front of me, the guy behind me, the guy next to me, and the guy uh, uh, directly behind me. And the purpose of that was, was that if I'm willing to shift my shield, then, then what I offer is not only protection to me, but it's also protection to you. Now, what if some guy says, you know what, I'm in this for myself, This shield is built just for me. It was issued to me, and I want to make sure that I'm covered. What happens to the integrity of that formation? It fails. It fails, yeah, because, and so then when the enemy would shoot arrows, the arrows would find their way in the gaps between the the shields, and then that could bring harm to somebody or render that, uh, uh, that formation useless. So it was dependent on everybody buying into the idea that we submit our own desire for self-preservation and our own rights and our own whatever for the sake of what? For the sake of the whole. So when Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, what is he saying? It isn't about you. Because Jesus did the same thing for us, shifted his shield for us, then we in what? Deference to one another, do the same. See, that's the radical nature of being a Christian, is that it isn't all about individuality in the sense that my individuality now will be Trump over your, our collectiveness. That we're in this together. And because we're in this together, then that's what submit is all about. Now, in the same way that he says, then, as the church submits to Jesus, right? We're in that relationship with him. Now he says the same thing that the wife is to submit herself in alignment, right? In that formation with uh, the husband. All right. So what that tells us is, is that there is more to marriage than simply what is advertised today, which is that marriage consists of mutual consent between two informed 
or somewhat informed uh, people about what marriage is. It's way more than that. And in fact, we say this in our marriage liturgy, at least in Lutheran world, as we say that Christian marriage gives us a picture of Christ in the church. So see, that gives it a bigger deal. It's a, it's a bigger, bigger thing than just simply two people who fell in love and they came together and they said, we'll make a life together. That's on a very surfacey, shallow level. Yeah, that's what it is. But it's way more than that in terms of, of our relationship with uh, Jesus. So again, when you think in terms of the shield elsewhere, later on in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about a shield. Remember the armor of God in Ephesians 6, put on the armor of God. What is the shield? The shield of faith is what he talks about. It sort of makes me wonder, and it doesn't say this in the Bible, but kind of makes me wonder, is in light of what he's talking about in Ephesians 5, I wonder if when he talks about the shield of faith in Ephesians 6, if he's not talking about it from the idea that, that we shift our shields of faith toward each other. So that it isn't simply that I have my faith and you have yours. I know Jesus, you know him. You know, we're all sort of these individuals who gather together collectively, but rather that there is a, an embodiment, if you will, a, a togetherness, if you will, where I, in fact, my faith can cover you. Now, that doesn't mean that you go to heaven on my faith. That's not what I mean. But it's the idea that when you are at your most vulnerable moments, could my faith be of benefit to you? Could your faith be of benefit to me? Yes, if we share it, if we shift it. But if I don't shift it and I say, well, you know, my faith is my faith and geez, so sorry for you, then I'm not really taking into account the opportunity that you have in that moment to be a blessing to somebody else in your faith. And the, the, the uh, the example that I think of, for example, is remember last week's gospel lesson talked about the four friends maybe that had their paralyzed friend and they, they brought him to Jesus. You know, remember how did they do that? Yeah, I always wondered whose house that was. You know, all of a sudden they're tearing away tiles from the guy's house. Presumably, maybe it was one of them. We don't know. Uh, maybe they had to do damages afterwards. I don't know. But, but anyway, it was just this whole idea that these guys... Their faith in Jesus was so, so strong and they were, had such conviction that their friend could be helped by Jesus, that they didn't care about anything else. And so in their faith, they did what? They supported him in his most vulnerable time. Okay. With me so far? Nobody's left yet. Okay, good. All right, let's go to the next page then as we're kind of going to, what I'm going to do is kind of work through this from the notes perspective, rather than taking the whole, uh, the whole body. All right. So now he says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So, so here we have the relationship of husband to wife as it is to Jesus and the church. And the word that he uses here is the word head. All right. So when you think of head, what I want you to think of is the word point man, the one who is out in front because if we think of this in terms of that phalanx idea, okay, and you can Google this and see all kinds of images of phalanx, usually in, in a phalanx formation, there is one entity out in front. Now, that means that one is the sacrificial lamb, right? 
because if it's a, if it's a formation of Navy ships and there's an enemy to, uh, submarine out there somewhere, uh, who's going to take the first hit? The head, right. If it's looking at a missile barrage coming in, who's going to take the first uh, blow up? The, the head. See, being the head is not a position of great honor, is it? <laughs> and see, the world says, if you're the head, you're the top dog. You're the one. You, everybody wants to achieve that, right? What's the whole idea in the world is get to the top, right? And then try to fight off as many people as you can because they're going to try to get to the top and take your place. That isn't what he's talking about. He's talking here, head is the one who is making the initial sacrifice because the head, the point man is willing to put his life on the line for the sake of what? Everybody else in the formation. Does that make sense? What he says it that way? Okay. So some examples of uh, head in terms of the way a husband might do that is uh, setting the marriage tone of courage and compassion and humility and providing and protecting and putting himself between the enemy and the formation, setting the example for everybody else in the family, calming the formation by his, uh, his own faith and confidence. And then I, I learned this one from one of our guys who's uh, a former military, uh, he's retired now, eating and resting after the army has already eaten or rested. See what the picture you get of the head is that what he's doing is setting not just the example of as I, he would say this is the example, but he's actually doing it. And when he does it what happens is that the impact that it has on the family and on the marriage is that they can't help but want to respond in in love and respect. See it isn't like the world says the, way, the reason why you get married is so that you can get your needs met. Can you get some needs met in marriage? Yes. But if that's what you went into it in the first place, there's never going to be enough action on the part of the other person to meet all your needs. There will always be another need that's needed to be met. Okay? So it, you, do you get the point in terms of what the head is? is that that is a place of, of high responsibility, but the responsibility is in the relationship. Okay? So then he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, does it kind of sound like he's only talking to husbands? It kind of does. Why would he be doing that? Okay, so they're the head. And again, we're talking about what head means here, right? That's not the big boss. Do as I say. It's not that kind of stuff. But, but he's the one who then is given the responsibility in the family, at least biblically, to be the teacher of these things to his family. Okay, that's, that's, the, way that, that's the way the biblical language works. But the other thing we want to remember is that in Paul's day, who had all the power? The men did. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the deal is in, in terms of the culture and society, if, if men are going to say, well, we have all the power, we have all the power. Well, then, then God's word says, fine, here's what you're going to do with it. And so if you're going to assume that in terms of your life and your marriage, well, then you got to follow in terms of God's word if you are, if you are biblically uh, driven that way. Okay. So last week, 
we talked about the uh, tips for, I mentioned a reference for a resource for uh, sort of 20 tips. Or no, it was 101 tips for the smart a stepmom, remember that? And someone had made some comment about that. And so anyway, I looked and I found 20 tips for the smart husband or dad. And this comes from a guy by the name of Gerald Rogers who put this out. He put this out a while back and it's actually called Marriage Advice I Wish I Had Had. So you can look that up if you want to, but that's the name of the guy, Gerald Rogers. But notice these things. And as you look at them, look at how many of them reflect the head as being one who is uh, exemplifying uh, self-sacrifice. Okay, take a look at them. Don't take her for granted. Protect your own heart. Fall in love over and over again. Always see the best in her. It's not your job to change or fix her. Take full accountability for how you feel. Never blame her if you're angry. Stay present when she's emotional. Don't take yourself so seriously. Fill her soul every day in ways that cherish her. Be truly with her when you are with her. Work at being desirable. Don't be an idiot. I love that one. <laughs> Give her space. Be vulnerable. Be courageously transparent. Never stop growing together. Celebrate your character strengths. Forgive immediately and problem solve your frustrations and cultivate love. See how many of those? See, those are some real practical ways, actually, to, to, uh, to be a self-sacrificial leader, if you want to call it that way. And I suspect, and I, I, I talk quite a bit with Christian uh, husbands and wives, and one of the things that I often will hear Christian uh, wives say is that they want their husbands to be a spiritual leader in the household. How many, have you, any of you ever heard of that before, to be a spiritual leader? Did you know that most guys have no clue as to what that is? I mean, that's kind of language that was used, you know, maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, but people today don't necessarily know what that means. And partly it's because there's so many people today that do not grow up in a church home. So they're not coming out of that background. They don't even know what spiritual leadership is, much less the ability to be able to do it. And so some of that could fit into this list, could it not? Yeah, Sandy. Um, on number 12, it says, do the oxytocin math. Yes. Well, I know what oxytocin is. Yes. Does anybody know what oxytocin is? Okay, we need a medical authority explaining what oxytocin is. Oxytocin is... Um, medicine that is given to women and to put them into labor. Okay, so, but the body naturally makes oxytocin. It's the hormone of bonding, of bonding. So when oxytocin levels are high, the lady in your life is going to say, I want you. When it's low, she's going to say, get out of my sight. Okay. So when women, when women, when uh, birth is being induced, okay, that's, that's used. What also is, is when women uh, breastfeed, okay, the, the, that hormonal experience that's going in, on inside is extremely powerful. So it's a, it's a hormone of bonding, okay? So uh, from a guy's perspective, what might it take for him what might he need to do in order to increase the likelihood that she would like to have him around here's a here's a bunch of things right here i mean see because what these all these things have to do is that what they have to do with is cherishing that person 
is treating that person as precious. And when you do that, what happens is the heart warms. Okay, the Bible's word for it is delight. Delight goes up. Have you ever seen delight go on? (laughs) I just thought of that. That was pretty good. But have you ever seen that? Have you, I know you have. I know you have. So it's like um, you can have two people, you know, and they, it, uh, like they're married or maybe they're not, but, but, but they see each other across the room. Their eyes meet. And then you start hearing this funky music going on behind the background. And of course, light, uh, a shaft of light from heaven comes down, right? But it's that idea is there's something that, and so if you just want to get real physiolo- physiological about it, oxytocin levels are just shooting right through the, right through the scene. But, but that's the idea is that the preciousness of that person, see, is, is huge. And when you think about it from that perspective, that's how Jesus feels about you. Delight goes on when Jesus thinks of you. Now, when you think in terms of what it takes to have the light go on, that kind of light for humans, given all of our failings, given all of our flaws, given all of our mistakes, given all the stupid stuff we do, how is it possible to have the light go on like that when it's so easy to remember all those things that that other person did that maybe haven't been resolved, maybe they haven't been fixed, and frankly, maybe they can't even be changed because that's part of that person's personality. How is it possible to have any kind of light go on in that way for somebody? It's only possible through grace and a daily practice of forgiveness. That's the only way you can do it. Because without that, you're left to your own strength to be able to do that. Well, I don't know about you, but my strength is about an inch deep. And then, uh, then the next thing that happens is, oh, yeah, and here's another thing, and here's another thing, and here's another thing. Okay? So that's, uh, that's why it takes the power of God's grace to do that. And that's what Jesus is reminding us as we, as we work through these verses. That that's how Jesus is able to look at, at sinful human beings who by nature want nothing to do with him. And, and yet say, I'm going to love you in ways that you can't imagine. And see, that's what he's saying that husbands can do with wives. So an example of cultivating love, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13, these are some wonderful descriptors of uh, what loving is, okay? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Okay? Now, you could take the word love out and insert the word Jesus. Would that be true about him? Yeah, and that's a good way to do that. Okay? By the power of God's grace, Jesus is patient. He is kind. What an interesting challenge would be to, is to take Jesus's name out and put your own in there. Okay. Oh, there's all kinds of smirks on that one. <laughs> could you do it? I bet you could. I bet you could. I'll bet if you did 
And then you told yourself every single day in the morning and in the evening that this is who you are. You could. Would you be perfect at it? No. Would you be better at it? Yes. Why not then? Because we have access to the same power. We have the access to the same grace that Jesus does. Why not? Might there be some challenges to that? Yeah, there might be. And so we're going to talk about what those are in a few minutes. Okay. Now to go back to the Ephesians reading. Okay. So he says that uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he kind of goes through this sort of description of what it is that Jesus has done for the church, for his body, for believers. And he kind of alludes to the idea that husbands and wives can do this for each other. So the first thing he says is to make her holy. Okay. Thinking in terms again of what Jesus does for believers is, and the use of the word holy here is not the word perfect, but it's set apart, distinct, exclusive, if you will. So as Jesus views you as precious and of highest worth, one for whom he died. So husbands are to treat their wives worth dying for would trade the world for her. You see, what that does is that elevates the wife to a high, uh, the highest status. And nothing, it's, it's the idea that nothing is going to get in the way of his willingness to, to die for her. Okay? Cleansing her by the washing with the word. So how does Jesus do that? What's the reference of washing to the word sound like to you? Baptism. Yeah, exactly. All right. So as Jesus cleanses our sinfulness through baptism, then husbands remind their wives and families that through baptism, they are God's beloved. And then therefore, if you are God's beloved, I will what? I will treat you as God's beloved. So some ways to do that. Daily recall your own baptism. Husbands, guys, are you doing it? You can. So we've talked about this before, um, the possibility of pulling out your own baptismal certificate and framing it or something where you can post it and you see it every single day so that you're filling your mind with that reminder that in that moment, Jesus or God came to you and said, you are my child whom I love with you. I am well, please, you know, if you're working out in the world today, you need that reminder every single day because everything else in the world has nothing to do with that. And that's kind of a broad statement. But there's so much in the world, particularly in the world of work, where it's all about what have you done for me lately? And if you haven't done it for me lately, there's the door because I can bring in six other people who can do it a lot better and probably cheaper. It's, a, it's an ungrateful world that we live in, and we ought to be prepared for that. So if I'm working and living in an ungrateful world, where am I going to get any sense of my worth and value and sense of purpose and why I'm here beyond the idea of making my mark in the world in my baptism? And if you were baptized as an infant... What that means is, is that God has been saying that to you before you had words. That is huge. If you were baptized later in life, you do have the advantage of having the memory of that. 
And you can go back to that memory, not just in terms of, oh, here it is on this piece of paper or somebody's Polaroid picture of it, right? But actually, does anybody know here what Polaroid is? Everybody know what that is? Okay. <laughs> I guarantee if we go across the hall into that other room over there, they have no idea what that is. What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, oh, here's a good one. So I was... I was sitting down with a young couple the other day and I was, we were doing some marriage counseling and I was trying to think of an example to use in terms of, you know, referencing the left side of the brain, the right side of the brain and frontal lobe is where you make good decisions. And so I looked and these, they're in their twenties. So, so I looked at them and I said, you know, like in Star Trek, I got the blankest look ever that I thought, Oh my gosh. I, I, so I suggested that they go on to the History Channel and then type in what, what Star Trek was. But anyway, it's, it's that, it, in, terms of that, in terms of that reference. All right, so, so going back to this idea of that do you daily recall that. See, somehow we have to put a voice in there or make room, maybe a better way to say it, is make room for the voice in there where God says who you are and why you're here. Because if you don't make room for that voice, there's plenty of other voices that are going to be in there to tell you. And, and those voices will be based on whatever experiences you've had in life, all the way from being a little kid all the way up till now. And those voices are in there too, especially if things go south on you. Things start to break down. Things aren't going the way that you thought they should. You've been treated in an unfair way. Somebody just out of the blue dumped you. Okay, those other voices will show up and they'll start talking to you. And there's got to be another voice in there. This is the best voice right here where he says, you are my child whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Okay. Second thing is guys, remind your wife and your family that they are God's beloved. When you get upset or stressed, pause before you say or do anything. And you can walk yourself literally during that pause. You can walk yourself through 1 Corinthians 13, asking the question, am I patient? Am I kind? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The idea of that is what? We are not at our best when we are reacting. And if we're in a relationship with somebody and if we're talking with them or we're at some sort of connection with them and they do something that upsets us or disappoints us, the best thing to do is wait before you speak, wait before you act. And frankly, we could come up with all kinds of biblical examples of people not doing that. And then this is how things blew up in their face. Can you think of one of the disciples, of Jesus' own disciples that had a very difficult time thinking before he acted or thinking before he spoke? Yeah, Simon Peter, one of, the be- one of the greatest leaders, you know, in the whole history of the church, he had a real difficult time with that, right? And poor Peter, it's written now in the Bible, and so every year we, we, we uh, at least what you and I do is not written in the Bible, thank goodness, unless people just keep reminding us. And then uh, the last one is pay attention to that praise, encouragement, criticism ratio. Remember what that was? For every criticism that you give to somebody, What? You do five praises or encouragements, okay? A lot of us get into the habit of flipping that ratio because we're more in tune with what people don't do and the way that they disappoint us and let us down. And after a while, we don't even notice the good thing that they did or the praiseworthy thing that they did, okay? Next part 
in terms of what Jesus does for the church, is to present her to himself without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, how did Jesus do that for us? Present us to himself as holy and blameless. How can sinners be blameless? How did he do that? Yeah, on the cross, he took what? He took the the punishment for, for all of that on himself, right? He bore that for us. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, right? So it's not even taking that on. It's like almost in, in, in the sense of who he was. So when Jesus looks at you, what does he see? He sees a forgiven, beloved, beloved child of God. His focus is not on the flaws or the shortcomings. So the application of this in terms of marriage might be that husbands are to take the lead in being the first to forgive and the first in seeking forgiveness so that the differences can be worked out. So how does that play out? If you're seeking forgiveness, what does that require of you? Hmm? I'd like to have a few more men answer this question. (laughs) The women seem to really know what the answer to this one is. What? What? Okay. And how does the humility, how does it show up? What does that mean? That if I, if I'm uh, exercising humility in seeking forgiveness, what is it I do? Isn't that wrong? Yeah. Yeah. That I would, I would first of all admit to myself that what I did was Wrong. Now, what if it, is it possible that I could do the right thing and still hurt somebody? Yeah, because I could get kind of uppity in the way that I presented being right, and then all of a sudden I'm hurting somebody. Okay, so humility means that I'm, I'm looking at myself, and I'm, I'm, there's admission there that either I did wrong or perhaps I handled it poorly. Okay. And then humility means what? If, if in seeking forgiveness, so now I've admitted to myself that, you know, there was a problem. So then what do I do in humility, Carl? I do what with you? Ah, yeah, I admit it to you, right? Okay. I mean, it's one thing to admit it to yourself and say, okay, I feel really bad and go buy flowers or whatever. Right. But, but that isn't, that isn't seeking forgiveness. That's just admitting to the the confession part. So seeking forgiveness means I go to the person and I maybe uh, ask that when I did that, did I hurt you? Or if I already know I did, I, I seek the reconciliation, right? I ask for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? Okay. Somebody other Oh, yeah, Marv. I learned a long time ago, maybe I was told a long time ago, too, when you do admit you did something wrong, you ask for forgiveness to do it without a but. A but? Don't put the but in there? Well, yeah, in other words, but you could have done this. Well, if you had not said that, yeah, yeah. not put a however in there. Yeah. Did you, like, learn that before you got married, or did you learn that? During. During, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's actually a good thing to learn before you get married, actually, would be that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. But it, isn't it interesting how often in those intimate kind of relationships like that, that that's where you really learn the power, the healing power behind that. And there's something to be said for genuine contrition as opposed to a sort of resignation that says, oh, well, okay, I was a jerk. Okay. 
I mean, okay, we all can admit you were a jerk, but, but, but that's not really what we're talking about here. That's not what that is. That's not really a genuine contrite kind of heart, okay? Because what, what the Bible talks about is a broken and contrite spirit. It says that in Psalm 51, and we sing that all the time in church, a broken and contrite spirit that truly realizes the damage that, that, uh, that you have done. And so the idea is to heal the damage. See, sometimes we think, oh, that's not forgivable. Well, that's just because I haven't confessed it. That's to be, I haven't worked at or worked toward the idea of for forgiveness and rec reconciliation. Okay. Yeah, John. You know, the other lame apology. The other one? <laughs> I'm sorry you took it that way. And oh, you're, yes. You're, you're kind of putting it back on wall. Yes. Because if you were not so sensitive... You know, yeah. And sometimes we sort of uh, hedge our bet a little bit by saying, if, I'm sorry, if. So see, that tells you that it is not in our nature to take responsibility for what we do. And where did that come from? Adam and Eve. Remember, God goes to Adam and says, what is this you have done? And what did he say? But without even, he should have paused. He should, <laughs> he should have paused. And counted to 50 or 1,000, he should have done that. But oh, no, no, no. What did he say? The woman you gave me. Okay? So it's, I mean, these two people were the perfect people up to that point. And now they're doing, and they just set the template, and now we just do the same thing. Okay? So it's, it's not kind of in our nature to do it, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it. All right? It's just to say that it takes the power outside of us to do that. It takes the power of God's grace to do that. And if you ever think to yourself, you can't do it, you're right. You can't do it. But if you call upon the power of God's grace in your life and keep that voice in the back of your, of your, of your mind, that voice of baptism, see, you are my child whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And because sin does not change that, you can admit to the sin, and you can ask for forgiveness. How difficult it would be to do that if you did not think you were God's beloved or you did not believe that you were, okay? And so then he says, Jesus feeds and cares for the church, and so husbands and wives feed and care, right? For we are members of his body. So the oneness of marriage reflects the oneness between Jesus and believers. So then he says, the husband should love his wife as himself, and the wife should respect her husband. And so this is the first time in all of this where he now then mentions the wife's response to the husband. So the thought there is, at least from my perspective, the thought is, is that respect is something that comes as a response to all of that initiating love that the, that the husband exercises. So it's still kind of on him, isn't it? It kind of is, isn't it? Is that if it, there's a lot of husbands that'll say, well, my wife just doesn't respect me. And when they say that to me, where I look is then that help me understand the ways in which you're loving her without expecting something in return. In the same way that Jesus does that for uh, his church. Okay? And so maybe you've seen this before where men often equate being loved as being respected. You know, if you talk to a guy about what it means to be loved, he'll say, well, I just want to be respected. 
Okay, so there is a little bit sometimes a little disconnect between what one means as love and what the other means. And then women often equate being loved as being treated precious. So we have here and then back here. Yep. When, when in the marriage ceremony did this respect turn into the word obey? <laughs> I don't, it's, it's in marriage ceremony. Yes, it's in the old liturgy. Yeah, it is. Right. Respect and obey are not the same. Apparently not. <laughs> and I would not dispute that. I mean, again, I, I think that the obey part came out of the old sort of hierarchical thinking here and maybe patriarchal, uh, you know, again, our, our history in Lutheran world comes out of Germany and Germany was a very patriarchal, now in some cases matriarchal too, but this idea that that everybody should uh, be seen and not heard. And, you know, you have, you know, your place and kind of all those kinds of things. So I think my, my own opinion is that's where that came from, but I can't tell you for sure. And I'm not about to dispute what you're saying in front of you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Carl. Well, what you've covered so far, the way you explained it, uh, really points to a different view uh, of this is a requirement of a man for his masculinity. Yes. Completely opposite to what's being shoved down our throats today. Right. Feminist movement. Well, it's not just the it's it's not just the assertion of a feminist. I think a feminist uh, authority, but it's also the willingness of men to not be the leader that they ought to be or the spiritual taking spiritual charge in the way that they ought to be. And, and to be fair with men, there's a lot of men that grew up in families where it was, again, it either wasn't Christian to begin with. Number one, sometimes men grew up in families where their own fathers were pretty harsh, pretty abusive. And so sometimes what happens is a guy grows up in that and swings to the other extreme and says, well, I'm not going to be like that. And so then there's kind of this extreme non-leadership sort of kind of thing. So I think that one of the things that we can do more of in the church is teach this and, and then, and not just teach it, but, but, uh, um, but live it, be model it. Okay. Because I think you're right. I think that masculinity today for a lot of men is a confusing idea. And, and with all of this, the me too movements and all those kinds of things, which are, they're not necessarily feministic. They're just, you know, a, a lot of stuff is now coming into the light. If you will, I think that there's a lot of confusion today about what it means to be masculine and how do you do masculinity in marriage and how do you do it in the world? How do you do that without stepping over the line and now becoming abusive and, and authoritarian and all those kinds of things? Okay. Does that make sense? So again, uh, maybe the church needs to be a little bit more the church, meaning Christendom, but Messiah Lutheran too, to take the lead in, uh, in teaching and leading that. Okay. So re- unconditional loving and respecting is hard to do. All right. So we want to think in terms of ways to make it easier. So when is it hard to do this? When one spouse disagrees with the other on how to discipline children. These are common major disagreements that people have in relationships. And so some ways to make that easier is, is to show love and respect by not criticizing the other person in front of the children. Now that kind of sounds like an absolute. There might be, 
There might be those uh, rare moments when you have to do it if somebody's being abusive. Yeah, you're going to have to do that. But generally, in a general sort of term, the idea is, is that uh, it's best to pull that person aside and say, hey, let me, let's talk together about how we're going to do this. Okay? And then showing uh, love and respect by being uh, open to the influence of the other parent. Sometimes what happens in parenting is that people um, are convinced that their way is the only way. And they're not open to anybody else's influence. Okay, well, that's, that doesn't make for a very shared or mutually satisfying uh, relationship. Okay, the second one is harder when grandparents disagree with how their adult children are parenting my grandchild <laughs> with the rules and discipline, and in particular, how many presents it's okay to give them at Christmas and their birthday. Okay. So make it easier by not criticizing them and honoring their rules unless harm is involved. Okay. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of who's guilty of that in this room, but uh, this is a common deal because a lot of times grandparents will say it wasn't my job to raise them. It's my job to what? Spoil them. And if you do that, you're probably going to be undermining those parents, your children, those parents, not a good thing. Okay. By the way, just a thought here. If the parents decided that they wanted to not let the grandparents see the kid, do they have a right to do that? So bear that in mind. Okay. All right. Number three is when divorced spouses have different rules for the children in each household. That's also really common. So make it easier by showing love and respect by not criticizing the other parent in front of the kids. That's one of those moments when you, you need to pause because in that moment, it's real easy to criticize the other parent's rules in front of the child, and then you're undermining what's going on. Okay. Uh, next one is when either spouse triggers the other's reactivity of guilt, shame, or fear. Have you ever had that happen? You have a feeling of guilt, uh, shame, or fear inside of you because your spouse triggered that. Those of you that are married. Like, and you say, oh, there you go again, putting me on a guilt trip. So showing love and respect by overlooking the little things. It would be so nice if we started living in a society where people actually overlook things, right? And then forgiving bigger things and then problem solving everything. Number two, show love and respect by avoiding such words as always, ever, never, only. How many of you find yourself using those words and you didn't even know you did? Always, ever, never, only. And how do you find the people around you reacting when you do? They will defend themselves, even if they know they are always wrong. They w we will in in invariably do that. So a good way to make that easier is instead of using the word always, just say 98% of the time. <laughs> Why? Because what does that mean? 98% of the time means what? That 2% of the time, that guy is not a complete loser. It's just, it'll work. It'll work. I guarantee you. All right. And then uh, show love and respect by talking through the differences. And then whatever you agree to in problem solving, keep your promise. Even if you're doing it under duress. Don't break the promise and say, well, the only reason I did it was to get you off my back. That is terrible. And it breaks trust, and that's not a good moment, okay? And then lastly, when any situation triggers you to go into fight-flight mode, you make it easier again by doing what? 
pausing, pausing, okay? And then listen and understand and that sort of thing, okay? Helpful stuff. Okay, this was bonus coverage today. All right, bonus coverage. So, uh, so there's no more, no more of what uh, was the, uh, the vestiges of the Sixth Commandment. And now we will move into the Seventh Commandment, right? Next week. Yeah, that was pretty good. All right, well, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us in such practical ways. And thank you, Lord, for reminding us that we are your beloved, that you've been saying to that to us forever, but you've said that to us in some very tangible and wonderful ways, through baptism, through your word, and through the gift of, uh, of communion. And give us uh, a reminder, Lord, that as you say that to us, we can be saying that to each other. And then we can allow that to govern how we treat each other in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships at work, at play, at church, wherever it might be. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be with uh, Pastor Coleman and uh, the group of missionaries in Belize. Bless their time and uh, make it fruitful and productive for your kingdom and to your glory. We watch over us until we're together again, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.